We're going to look at, surprise, surprise, Tiberius Caesar. And let's take the text from Luke chapter 3, verses 1a and b. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. We begin this evening with the predecessor to Tiberius Caesar, one who adopted him as his own son, though not of his issue, the one whose image you see on the first handout in your packet. A gold coin featuring Augustus Caesar, on which he is labeled Divus Augustus. Can anybody translate that Latin for me? Divus Augustus? Divine Augustus, correct. Now you'll notice that the orthography of the V is also used for the U. That is classical Latin in iconography or inscription. Namely, there's no distinction between the U and the V. They knew how to pronounce it. Eventually, they smoothed out the bottom of the V when they wanted to say a U, but nonetheless, you can see it there. This gold coin was discovered in the last three months in Israel by a woman hiking in Galilee. She spotted a shiny object, and incidentally, the color picture of this on the Internet, if you want to pick it up, it's, uh, the link is on your handout. <clears throat> the color picture here is quite beautiful. Uh, she saw it shining on the surface of the ground while she was hiking Uh, near the Sea of Galilee, and she picked it up, and it has been examined and turned over to the Israeli Department of Antiquities. Uh, She voluntarily gave it to them. Now, this coin was minted during the reign of the Roman Emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 A.D. In other words, this coin that you see was not minted during the time of Augustus. It was minted more than a 100 years later during the reign of the Emperor Trajan. Can anyone tell me what you know about the Emperor Trajan? There's probably only one person here that would know something about Trajan. That's our professor of New Testament. Yes, the persecution of the church. Trajan's imperial letters to his governor of Bithynia. Where is Bithynia? It's in the New Testament. Where is it? Peter writes to the strangers there, 1 Peter 1.1. Paul wanted to go there. The Holy Spirit said no and turned him away to Macedonia. Where is Bithynia? Northern. It is one of the provinces of Northern Asia Minor, bordering what, Pete? Uh, what body of water? Oh, Black sea. It borders the Black Sea, right, on the north side of modern-day Turkey. All right, in Bithynia, Trajan's governor was named Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y. And Pliny's correspondence with Trajan was questions about what he would do with Christians. Here in the early 2nd century, in Bithynia of Asia Minor, a Roman emperor is being asked by his governor 
What do I do with Christians? They will not worship the statues of the emperor. Past emperors, present emperors, they won't bow down. They won't pour out sacrifices. What kind of sacrifices would they make to the statue or images of the emperor? Well, they would pour out wine libations. They would also offer animal sacrifices on occasion. But the one one thing that was uh, <clears throat> required was that some offering be made to them if they were asked to do so. Christians refused to do so. And so Pliny was saying, what should I do to them? And Trajan says, <clears throat> if they will renounce Christ, they will deny Christ and let them live. If they will not deny Christ after asking them three times, then execute them. So the emperor who's minting this divine Augustus coin obviously believes in the divinity of the emperors. In this case, a past emperor. In fact, Trajan was minting a series of coins, one of which you see before you, a series of coins honoring not only the memory of the divine Augustus, but Tiberius and Claudius, notice they skipped Caligula, and Nero and so on and so forth, Domitian up to his own reign. The correspondence between Trajan and Pliny the Younger is a very interesting reading. You have a first-hand primary document from the Roman Empire as to what the test of living or dying was if you were a Christian in this region. And it's easy to pull that up, that correspondence up on the Internet. You can find the letter of Pliny to Trajan and Trajan's response to Pliny by simply Googling it. All right. The veneration or worship of the Roman emperors as a god was originally automatic after their death, after they died. This practice was based on the first apotheosis or divinization of Julius Caesar upon his death in the Ides of March 44 B.C. So Augustus, who succeeded Julius Caesar, as you may recall, Augustus, as you can see from your handout, was regarded as a divine or godlike figure on his death in 14 AD, deified by decree of his successor Tiberius, who was to rule the Roman Imperium until his death in 37 AD. Now you can see a coin with Tiberius's image on it in the second a sheet of pictures from your handout with an inscription labeling him a son of God, a son of a God. <clears throat> now, the Latin inscription there is a little hard to figure out, but the transliteration on the left-hand side gives you the full meaning of it. Tiberius, Caesar, Divini, Augusti, Filius, Augustus or Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus Augustus, because Tiberius took the full name Tiberius Caesar Augustus. That's the reason you see Augustus twice at the end of that little 
quotation. In chapter 3, verse 1, Luke gives us his name, Tiberius Caesar, and a date in his reign, namely his 15th year, which is 29 A.D., but wherever the Caesar of the four Gospels is mentioned, even without a name, that Caesar is always Tiberius. Whether in Jesus' remark, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, or the protest of the bloodthirsty crowd on Good Friday, we have no other king but Caesar. Caesar in the four Gospels is always Tiberius Caesar. One we're talking about in detail this evening. Now, I emphasize that divinization of the emperor occurred after his death because Augustus and Tiberius hesitated to declare themselves a god while they lived. His hesitancy was so as not to offend the nobility and the Senate of Rome most of whom would have thought it obscene to worship a living God on earth. But after he was dead, no problem. Nevertheless, in the eastern regions of the Roman Empire, even during the reign of Augustus and Tiberius, that is Asia Minor, Syria, Parthia, the worship of the living emperor was practiced. And the emperors themselves winked at it because they knew it was an Eastern custom or tradition to think that their ruler was divine. But eventually, the emperors gave in. And the first one to do so publicly was Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD, alleged to have been the one who put the apostle John to death. Domitian demanded that he be recognized as Dominus et Deus, Latin phrase meaning Lord and God, while he was alive. He was the first one to say, you will acknowledge me that way. You will call me Lord and God. And it is this blasphemy which causes some interpreters to make Domitian the man behind the symbol of evil in the book of Revelation. I remain dubious about that interpretation, but that's another matter. The statue of Tiberius, which is next in your handout, is a part of pagan devotion to a deified human. A deified, sinful, and in this case, wretchedly depraved human. Tiberius was not a nice person. All this reminds us of the fundamental creed of paganism, its confession of trust and loyalty, the confession of faith of paganism, if you will, which is the worship of man, especially the man of power, who is the center of the world or the center of his world and has the charisma to subject others to his own arrogant pride. Thus, paganism advances a man who is an absolute ruler, a man who rules without restraint, a man who rules as the pagan Roman emperor ruled, autocratically, despotically, tyrannically, cruelly, 
and lawlessly, save for the law of the pagan creed, which is to rule at will, to rule at the will and whim of the pagan ruler, not the will of the ruled. That is the privilege of the pagan creed, of the deification of the man who sits upon the seat of rule, of making the emperor a virtual god or godlike figure. That is the creed of pagan Rome, the pagan Roman world. It was the creed of devotion to one divine figure on earth, the emperor himself. Refusal to honor the pagan creed. Refusal to honor the pagan ruler meant ostracism, isolation, exile, persecution, even death as it did in the reign of the emperors Claudius, Nero, Domitian, and Trajan. All modern liberalism, whether it be socialism, fascism, or communism, all modern liberalism of the 21st century, social, political, intellectual, economic, religious, all Modern liberalism is grounded in paganism. All modern liberalism is rooted and grounded in paganism. The elevation and worship of man. All modern liberalism is at base oppressive, murderous, tyrannical, despotic, and cruel. It adores the power and charisma of the central ruler and glorifies every move and decree that godlike person makes, even when it is obviously dictatorial and autocratic. Such a culture is not friendly to Christianity, as ancient imperial Roman culture was not friendly to Christianity. The bookends of Augustus Caesar and Tiberius Caesar, which Luke places in his gospel, remind us of the pagan environment into which our Lord Jesus was born and the pagan environment in which he ministered and was himself crucified by that paganism. It is a pagan Roman ruler who governs Judea, a foreign pagan ethos which controls the state, a pagan ethos which controls the judiciary, a pagan ethos which controls the Senate, a pagan ethos which controls the people. Christianity is born into a hostile world, a hostile pagan world, autocratic, single ruler obsession, vapid human messianism, a world of cruel injustice for those Christians who objected to or stood apart from the pagan world and life view. Now, the particular tyranny and autocracy of Tiberius Caesar was the result of his depression. He carried emotional scars with him from his childhood. His obsession... He was, in fact, certifiably paranoid. 
his secession. He withdrew from public life. Each one of those ION words fueled and reinforced by his suspicion. We pick up the story with the interface between Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, the narrative thread of which begins on page two of the Tiberius Caesar handout, if you brought it or if you have it, bottom of page two. The interface between Tiberius and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was appointed governor or prefect, not procurator, of Judea in 26 AD, and he was appointed such by Tiberius Caesar himself. Now, I make a point of the term prefect and not procurator to correct the mistake of Josephus, first century Jewish historian, and Tacitus, first century Roman historian. They labeled Pilate a procurator, and some English translations have put that word into this verse 3.1. But there was an inscription discovered in Palestinian Caesarea in 1961. And if you turn to your next picture handout, you'll see a map of, of Judea, and you'll see Palestinian Caesarea on the coast of the Mediterranean there, just above and to the left of the word of the letter S in Samaria. An inscription was discovered in that city in 1961, which reads Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea, which means Pontius Pilate Prefect of Judea. The governor of Judea was called a prefect from the time in which he ruled, and that inscription is from Pontius Pilate's time of rule. So it is a first-hand primary document. He was called a prefect, not a procurator, during the reign of Augustus and Tiberius Caesar. Now, I mentioned that Tiberius had appointed Pilate to go to Judea in 26 A.D., that event is well choreographed in William Wyler's magnificent film, Ben-Hur. You may recall the scene, the festal celebration of Ben-Hur's adoption by Quintus Arius and his introduction to Pilate, who says, it seems the wilderness needs my particular talents. Pilate's particular talents had been recommended. They had been recommended to Diperius by Lucius Aelius Sejanus, or simply Sejanus for short. So Pilate goes to Judea by the appointment of Tiberius Caesar. But Pilate comes to the attention of Tiberius Caesar because of Sejanus. Sejanus was the powerful commander of the Praetorian Guard, the Roman equivalent of the Secret Service, only decidedly more ruthless. Pilate and Satanists will play a role once more at the end of Christ's life so that the bookend will recur. Augustus at the beginning of Jesus' life, Tiberius at the end of Jesus' life, Pilate at the beginning of Jesus' public career, 
Pilate at the end of Jesus' public career. Luke is not only an accurate historian, he is a gifted writer, foreshadowing the end of his story of Jesus in the beginning of his story of Jesus. This is the way to really write suspenseful literature, even under inspiration. The emperor Tiberius is mentioned only here in the New Testament. You will find a city called Tiberius, A.S., in John's Gospel, chapter 623. If you look at your map that's still in your hand, you'll notice that Tiberius is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is sometimes called the Sea of Tiberius. It is so called in John 6, verse 1, and John 21, verse 1. This city, Tiberius, was erected by Herod Antipas. Jesus called him the fox. Herod built this in 20 AD as a tribute to the reigning Roman emperor, namely Tiberius Caesar himself. It was to serve as Herod's new capital. Now, Herod's old capital, if you see from the map, was in Sepphoris, just to the west and just above Nazareth. We talked about that when we opened this series on uh, Luke's infancy narratives. Nazareth was not very far away from the capital of Galilee that Herod had originally established, Sepphoris, even though it was off the beaten path. But Sepphoris wasn't good enough to honor Tiberius Caesar. So Herod ditched his capital in Sepphoris and built an entirely new city on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. Now you will notice that the Herod mentioned in Luke 3 is the very same Herod Antipas who ruled Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. New emperor, new capital in his honor. He distinguishes himself by taking Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, beheading John the Baptist for objecting to his crass adultery and hoping Jesus would perform some magic tricks when he was dispatched by Pontius Pilate the night before Jesus was crucified, Luke 23, verse 8. You may recall that Herod and Pontius Pilate were reconciled as friends after that exchange. Herod and his brother Philip were all Roman toadies, sycophants, sycophants eager to do Rome's bidding in Jewish Palestine, the rule of Jewish Palestine. To rule Jewish Palestine in the first century A.D., our Lord's days, was no picnic. There was the climate. There was the religious fanaticism. There was the factiousness of the social classes. And there was the Old Testament. The Old Testament with its prognostication of a Messiah. Pilate, like Herod Antipas, in an attempt to honor his emperor Tiberius in Jerusalem, ran afoul of some of those Jewish sensitivities. Josephus, a famous Jewish historian whom I've already mentioned, tells us in his record of the history of Judah and Jerusalem in the first century, he tells us that Pilate erected standards or ensigns in Jerusalem with the effigy of Tiberius etched into them. In other words, they etched a picture or a representation of Tiberius into these standards or ensign-like signs. The Jews, 
readily objected to the image of the emperor in their holy city. And though Pilate threatened them with death, they actually prostrated themselves on the ground in front of them, fronted him, bared their necks, and said to him, Do your worst. Pilate relented and removed the standards in order to avoid what would have been certainly a Jewish bloodbath. He wasn't that stupid. Now, there's another famous incident in which Pilate exacerbated the sensitivities of the Jewish subjects whom he ruled. He dedicated some golden shields in honor of Tiberius at his own gubernatorial residence in Jerusalem. Now, this time it's Philo, the first century Jewish philosopher, who tells us this story. Yes, there was a first century Jewish historian, Josephus, first century Jewish philosopher named Philemo, Philo of Alexandria. The shields evidently bore a dedication to the emperor, not necessarily his image, but a dedication to the emperor. And even though they were on the governor's house, Pilate ostensibly was doing it on purpose. It seems that Pilate and his friend Sejanus, who had helped him come to the governorship of Jerusalem, it seems that they had secret anti-Semitic tendencies. And so Pilate, with these shields, was in your face to you Jews. The shields produced a near riot. Tiberius was not complimented by the deed or by the shield. Oh, yeah, word got back to Rome real quick from the Jewish network, maybe even faster than email. Especially when it was reported that the Jews were about to riot over these shields. And Tiberius sent an email right back to Pilate to remove those offending shields from Jerusalem and send them over to Caesarea. Yeah, the same Caesarea on the coast where that inscription about Pontius Pilate was discovered. Pilate could have lost his job over this incident. Pilate could have been summoned back to Rome and executed for this incident. But Tiberius permitted him to stay on in Judea and Pilate wiped his brow. I dodged that bullet. But Luke tells us even more about the character of Pilate. Yes, we can create a character sketch of Pontius Pilate before the trial of Jesus from the records of the day. Luke records a reference to Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Luke 13.1 Apparently, Pilate had executed some Galileans. When they presented their sacrifices to God, perhaps when they came to Jerusalem for Passover. Pilate had avoided bloodshed in the matter of the ensigns and the shields, but he did spill blood, the blood of these devout Galilean pilgrims, as Luke records. And we know he did it once more. There's the matter of the Jerusalem aqueduct, yes. Pilate and the Jerusalem aqueduct. Josephus tells us that Pilate planned to build an aqueduct in order to bring fresh water to Jerusalem. Nice public works project, right? 
Sounds good, right? But who's going to pay for it? Ah, now, now we come to the bureaucrat pilot. He sounds just like a Democratic senator. He raided the temple treasury and seized the funds of the people that had been given to the work of the Lord. He robbed them. Now, some people can call it taxation, but he said, I'll just grab that loot. The ensuing protest resulted in death for many of the protesters. Now he had blood on his hands again. And thus, by the time we arrive at Good Friday, we should not be surprised that Pontius Pilate is compliant in shedding innocent blood. He's got a record of shedding innocent blood. It doesn't bother him to shed innocent blood. He's at home with it. That's where he lives. There's enough proof to show it, even outside of him washing his hands ceremonially before sending Jesus off to the cross. You're not dealing with a man who's an innocent bystander or trapped in a dilemma. You're dealing with a man who's a first-rate gubernatorial murderer. And he plays the game. But now to Tiberius himself. Though described on inscriptions as a son of the divine Augustus, though extender and continuer of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, Tiberius Caesar was not a happy man. No, Tiberius Caesar was not a happy man. In fact, Tiberius's reign as emperor opened in unhappiness, and Tiberius's reign as emperor ended in unhappiness. So happy were the citizens of Rome when the news of his death reached their ears that they took to the streets of Rome shouting to the Tiber with Tiberius, to the Tiber, the famous river flowing through the fabled city of the Seven Hills, to the Tiber, a slogan, an expostulation of disgust and contempt. To the Tiber, a place for the disposal of a corpse. To the Tiber, the place for the corpse of criminals and vagabonds. To the Tiber with Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, not much lamented, not much liked when he died in 37 A.D., Let's have a bonfire celebration to the Tiber with Tiberius. How pathetic. How pathetic this eulogy for the king of the world. This is the eulogy of the populace for the son of the divine Augustus. This is what the people really thought of their God. Well, in truth... He was not the son of Augustus. Tiberius was, in fact, an afterthought, a mere convenience. Indeed, a necessity. Augustus had adopted him only after his legitimate sons and grandsons had died. Tiberius was not the son of Augustus's body, he was the legal heir to Augustus's necessity. Augustus's necessity, how Tiberius was haunted 
by Augustus and his necessities. It was Augustus Caesar's necessity, necessity for lust, that first brought Tiberius into the emperor's ominous circle. He was only four years old. He was only four years old. His mother and father happily married. The family circle, father, mother, child, content. Content. But Augustus wanted Tiberius' mother for himself. And what Augustus wanted, Augustus got. Absolute power stops at nothing. Even breaking up families for the sake of self-indulgence. That's the mark of absolute power. One of the places where you see absolute power in action is in the sexual escapades. That's a display of absolute power and subjugation. Augustus Caesar forced Tiberius' mother and father to divorce so that he could now take the available wife to his own bed. Tiberius becomes a legitimate heir to the Roman throne through the illegitimate divorce of his mother and beloved father. Emotional scars from year four. Was it this dysfunctional family situation that drove Tiberius to the army? To the frontiers of Roman peacekeeping bivouacs in Spain, Parthia, Germania, or Germany, and the Balkans, Illyricum. Whatever the reason, these were the only happy years Tiberius knew. Away from Rome. Away from Augustus. Away with the army. Away with the soldiers. Away with his fighting buddies. Away being preoccupied with something to take his mind off his scars. And his occasional visits to Rome in between tours on the battlefield to visit his own wife, Vispania, Vispania to whom he was happily married. His happy home Ostensibly. But Augustus was not finished. Augustus Caesar was not finished bringing unhappiness to the life of Tiberius. Augustus's daughter, Julia, was widowed when Tiberius was 30 years old. That's 12 BC. Augustus once again ordered a divorce. This time, Tiberius was to put away Vispania, the wife whom he loved, in order to satisfy Augustus's whim for his daughter Julia to have a husband of prominence, deja vu, like mother, like son, both manipulated by the tyrannical power of the emperor Caesar Augustus. No, Caesar Augustus is not a nice man either. And that new liaison 
Tiberius and his new wife, Julia, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. Julia was a notorious and open adulteress, flaunting her sexual favors brazenly before the entire Roman public. She even revolted her own father. Tiberius was revolted by her as well as Augustus, so revolted that in 6 B.C., in his unhappy bitterness, he exiled himself. He exiled himself to Rhodes. And your next handout picture is a copy of the map of the Near East, which shows Rhodes. As you can see, it's an island off the coast of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey in the Mediterranean Sea, far enough away from Rome to once again help Tiberius forget. Now, Rhodes was the site of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The huge Colossus of Rhodes which was a gigantic statue of the sun god, one of the Greek titans, the god of the sun, named Helios. Now, Helios is actually the Greek word for sun. And whether or not this statue was used as a lighthouse is not certain, because it was destroyed within 60 or 70 years of its erection to an earthquake that collapsed it. But never fear, there is a government project to build it again and to put up the Colossus of Rhodes at Rhodes by a modern bureaucratic government or maybe UNICEF is collecting pennies on Halloween for it. Tiberius withdrew to Rhodes. Oh, incidentally, I should mention that if you're not familiar with the Helios Helios Overture of, um, now my mind went blank, (laughs) the Danish composer Nielsen, Um, you ought to dial it up on the uh, internet and listen to it. It's uh, the Helios Overture of uh, Nielsen is a portrait in music of the rising of the sun over the Aegean in the morning, passing over uh, midday and setting at the western edge of the Aegean uh, at the end of the day. He wrote it for his wife, and uh, it's actually a very short overture, but it's gorgeous if you've never... Heard it, H-E-L-I-O-S, Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N, Nielsen's Helios Overture. At any rate, it comes <clears throat> as a reminder to me of this uh, Helios statue that was at, uh, at Rhodes. Well, why did Tiberius go to Rhodes? Well, he went to get away from his profligate wife. That's one thing he did. But he also withdrew in order to devote himself to the occult. Mm-hmm. The dark powers, to devote himself to astrology. He actually idolized astrology. To devote himself to divination, what we would call magic, magic tricks, and the powers of magic. Uh, 
He spent eight years on roads immersing himself in all of this nonsense to fill up his brain with something besides his lost love and his wretched adulterous second bride and the emperor who controlled his life by turning the thumb screws at the point of his emotions. Tiberius was not really a happy man, even on the Isle of Rhodes. And we'll leave him there while we take a short break, and we'll pick up the story when he is called back from his exile. Unless you have a question. And somebody has a question back there. Why did the Romans get so upset about Christ saying he was the Son of God and they tolerated all of these uh, Caesars who said they were the Son of God? It was not so much the Romans as it was the Jews. It was the Jews who were upset that Jesus called himself the Son of God. It's the Romans who are responsible for executing him because the Jews couldn't. But remember, it's the Jews that bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. They're the ones that are asking him to, in fact, pass the sentence that they cannot pass, execute him for blasphemy. No, not necessarily. Pilate was right when he said he found nothing worthy of death in Jesus. But the Jews were going to riot again, and we'll tell you why Pilate was willing to bend to the will of the mob. We'll tell you that in the second session. Any other, any other questions or comments? Then stretch your legs. Now, during the break, my mind came back to me. I, I left you an opening there. <laughs> um, that first name of that Danish composer. You didn't know there was a Danish classical composer, did you? Carl Nielsen. Carl Nielsen. K. And um, again, the Helios Overture. Beautiful piece. Not long, but lovely. All right. Back from Rhodes. Augustus would recall Tiberius from Rhodes to Rome in the year 2 AD. He had need of him, and Tiberius would once more be manipulated by his nemesis stepfather. Rome must have an imperial succession. Caesar Augustus had no successor. All his primary heirs were prematurely dead Tiberius was all that was left. And so, the leftover stepson, whose mother had been torn from the arms of his natural father by Augustus, whose beloved wife had been torn from his own arms by Augustus, the afterthought of an heir was formally adopted, formally adopted to succeed Caesar Augustus on the throne in 4 AD. Ten years later, 14 AD, Tiberius became king of the world. His nemesis, Augustus, finally died. 
but Tiberius still had no peace. His disillusionment with life had already made him slightly paranoid that would progress. His disillusionment with life already made him cruel. In 14 AD, the unhappy and reluctant Tiberius became emperor of Rome. He was to continue and advance the age of gold, as it was called, ushered in by Augustus's Pax Romana. But there was no Pax, there was no peace in the soul of Tiberius Caesar. Nor was there peace between the new emperor and the Roman Senate. As if sensing the hesitancy and disillusionment in their new emperor, the Roman Senate responded to him with hesitancy and suspicion. Should they jockey for a remnant of their senatorial privileges, the rights of the old Republican aristocracy, Republican with a small r here, that is, Republican as representatives of the people, those Republican rights so masterfully crushed by Julius and Augustus Caesar both, should they remain figureheads, be content to be puppets of their powerful ruler, rubber stamps, if you will, of his every whim, or should they assert their independence, strike out with their own initiative, regain their constitutional privileges, The Senate and Tiberius were never quite sure of one another. Tiberius distrusted the Senate and remained aloof from its deliberations. He even once spoke contemptibly of the senators as men fit to be slaves. The Senate, in turn, was very cautious. Very cautious and deliberate in its relations with the emperor. This standoff between the old Republican senators and the new imperialist monarch, lasted the 23 years of Tiberius' reign. The emperor ruled by his imperial privilege, and the Senate did nothing. The Senate did nothing to restrain him. Twelve years after ascending the Palatine Hill to receive the imperial laurel, Tiberius quit Rome once and for all. In 26 26 AD, unhappy, aloof, isolated, paranoid, Tiberius withdrew from Rome for the last time. Withdrew from the magnificent edifices of the city of the Seven Hills. Withdrew to the tranquility of the Isle of Capri. And your next map in your packet shows you... Capri, in the region of Campania, one of the uh, lush regions of western Italy. So there you see the geography of where he went. And there on that island, overlooking the beautiful azure blue bay of Naples, that's the Bay of Naples between Capri and Napoli, Tiberius secluded himself in a cliff-top villa overlooking the peaceful waters of the Tyrrhenian Sea. And your next handout shows you the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is that western part of the Mediterranean (coughs) off of Italy. And also you'll notice if you see Capri, if you can see Mycenaeum, 
in the circle, you'll notice how far he was from Rome on the Isle of Capri with his withdrawal from public affairs. However, in that villa, on that Isle of Retreat, if we can believe the Roman historians Suetonius and Tacitus, unhappy, bitter, paranoid Tiberius indulged every perverse lust and aspiration to the full. Was he getting even? Sexual perversity and abuse is so often a way of getting even, a way of self-reward, paying back with abuse the abuse that has been meted out. Our own so-called enlightened culture has not advanced much beyond Tiberius in this particular regard. Unhappiness, disillusionment, bitterness, these often generate vile, vicious abuse, particularly sexual abuse. Tiberius, like so many sinners before and after, would find happiness in the abuse of others, even as his happiness had been abused. In that famous year, when Tiberius left Rome never to return, that is, in the year 26 A.D., Tiberius did something else which we've already mentioned. He appointed Pontius Pilate governor of Judea, and as we have noted, Pilate likely came to Tiberius' attention through the intercession of the commander of the Praetorian Guard, Sejanus. Therefore, beginning in 26 A.D., with Tiberius on the Isle of Capri, who's running the show in Rome, Sejanus. And Sejanus would have more and more influence in Roman politics as the emperor remained distant on his island villa. More influence after Tiberius's departure for Camp Capri than Tiberius himself. As commander of the Praetorian Guard, Sejanus controlled the most powerful fighting force in Rome. Every soldier in that guard had worked his way up the ladder through long, hardened endurance and military service. This was an elite corps, an elite corps sworn to protect the emperor, and in his absence, Sejanus became the power broker, de facto the emperor, to the soldiers of the guard. Tiberius trusted Sejanus implicitly, at least at first. But little by little, Tiberius, paranoid Tiberius, remember, Tiberius grew increasingly suspicious of the most powerful soldier in the empire. Five years after departing for his villa and leaving Sejanus in command of Rome, Tiberius was convinced that his vicar on the Tiber was plotting a rebellion, a rebellion in which he would execute Tiberius and elevate himself to the throne. The sword of Tiberius was swift and deadly, even from a distance. Sejanus was arrested, beheaded, and disgraced in the space of less than 24 hours. And the bitter, unhappy Tiberius fed his bloodlust to the day of his death by a vicious witch hunt in pursuit of every ally of Sejanus's conspiracy. For six years, from 31 to 37 A.D., the year of his death, Tiberius hunted, arrested, tortured, executed hundreds of men and women whom he accused of complicity in the treason of his former ally. Now, I noticed his death. I mentioned his death in 37 AD, but he did not die on the Isle of Capri in his island villa. He actually died in Mycenae. And that last 
map in your uh, packet shows you the location of Mycenaeum just north of the Isle of Capri on the banks of Campania, that region in which this uh, whole uh, scenario is located. The story is that he had left the Isle of Capri to journey inland, whether it was a sightseeing trip or whether it was on some kind of official business, I'm not sure. But he had he'd come over to the mainland, and on his way back, he got sick and died at Mycenaeum before he arrived at his island villa at Capri. Now, you also see that in that region, there is Mount Vesuvius pictured. Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii. And you recall that famous story of the eruption, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in which it spewed ash and lava so forcefully and instantaneously that it made sarcophagi, living sarcophagi of people in Pompeii, Pompeii <coughs> which uh, archaeologists uncovered and uh, had a, a so-called treasure stroke of, of macabre examination because they caught people sitting at their tables. They caught people sleeping. They have uh, perfect casts of them. Uh, it's, of course, a fascinating view of what Roman culture was like in that city in that fateful year, 79 A.D., when Mount Vesuvius erupted. And it has actually erupted since then, too. Well, anyway, as you can see, a historically very event, eventful area of the world. I want now to return to Tiberius's 23rd year. From his, I want to return from his 23rd year, 37 A.D., to his 15th year, 29 A.D. I want to go back to Luke 3.1, which is our text for the evening. Now, it is obviously that in this passage, Luke is giving us a date. He's dating the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan. A fixed date in the life of Jesus. In 29 AD, Jesus of Nazareth enters his public ministry with a proclamation of his first sermon that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is a very different kind of kingdom, a very different kind of king than Tiberius Caesar, who begins the third chapter of Luke's gospel. We have previously noted who comes next in Luke 3.1, that is, who stands alongside Tiberius in the text. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Pilate became governor of Judea in 26 A.D. In 29 A.D., he had already been in Jerusalem for three years. He was a seasoned veteran by 29 A.D. when Jesus began to preach. Pilate had been ensconced in Jerusalem when Jesus began to preach the kingdom of heaven. The life of Tiberius and the life of Pilate would be intertwined by more than Luke's inscripturated narrative. Perhaps Luke knew about Pilate and Tiberius and the gilded shields. Luke certainly knew about Pilate's ruthlessness in the matter of the deaths of the Galileans, which he records in chapter 13, verse 1. Did he know about the debacle of the aqueduct, the about-face in the matter of the standards? We do not know about those things, but we do know 
that if Jesus was baptized in 29 AD and his public ministry was about three years in length, he was crucified sometime after 31 AD. Now, what happened in 31 AD? Sajanus was executed. 31 AD, and Tiberius's friend, <clears throat> Pilate's friend, Sajanus, was executed. And who recommended Pilate as governor of Judea? Sajanus. With Sajanus and his co-conspirators in trouble in Rome after 31 AD, Pilate is very careful. Pilate is very careful not to arouse suspicion or provoke riots again in Jerusalem. Imagine the chill which must have shot up Pilate's spine when the mob demanding Christ's crucifixion hurled these remarks at him. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar, known as Amicus Caesaris in Latin. No friend of Caesar. Remember, Tiberius Caesar. No friend of Tiberius Caesar. Shudder. Shudder. My friend Sajanus recommended me to Tiberius Caesar. And now my friend Sajanus is dead. Double shudder. You are no friend of Caesar. No, if this Jewish mob wants to crucify its Messiah, Pilate will simply wash his hands of the matter rather than risk his precarious political future with a paranoid emperor bent on a bloodbath for disloyalty in Rome and beyond. Pilate had already been rebuked for one riot by Tiberius. He was not going to risk another clash with the emperor over a peasant from Nazareth. This is a purely political move. I wash my hands. Don't give me any of this romanticism about Pilate being trapped on the horns of a dilemma. Balderdash. He's a politician. So over against Tiberius Kingmaker, imperial power player of the world in which Jesus was raised, over against Pontius Pilate, Tiberian appointee, gubernatorial power player, in Jerusalem, over against Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, Jesus. Jesus. When you understand the details behind these lives, the juxtaposition is jarring. Intentionally jarring. And it may be one of the reasons Luke mentions them both. No, not in Rome or Capri in the reign of Tiberius. No, not in the Roman quarters of Pontius Pilate, but in a wilderness river, in a tiny village synagogue, on a bloody criminal's cross, in an empty grave. There is where lasting history was made, says Luke. The one born in an obscure village, placed in a manger, baptized by a wild man, crucified as a common criminal, such a one could be of little interest to Rome, little interest to Roman tyranny, Roman immorality, Roman cruelty, Roman paganism. Rome was little interested in Jesus of Nazareth, but Luke is. And the church to which Luke writes is 
even the church of the 21st century to whom Luke writes. They are interested. And while Luke is most interested in the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture in Christ, Luke 24:44, the most powerful text in that regard, Luke is also interested in the broader historical context of the advent of Christ. He gives us more Roman history than any other New Testament writer. The context. The context of the world in which Jesus and the disciples and the gospel was first proclaimed. I want to conclude by observing the titles and labels accorded to the second emperor of the Roman peace, Pax Romana, the Novus Ordo Seculorum, the new order of the world, the titles and labels given to Tiberius Caesar. We have noted that he was called a son of a god. This would provide enough justification for considering his role as successor to the august one as somewhat messianic. Yes, messianic. He once described himself as the good shepherd to his Egyptian subjects. Valerius Maximus, a contemporary, called Tiberius the savior surest of the fatherland. Son of a god. Good shepherd, savior. All of those terms have messianic implications, political messianism, if nothing else. But a new discovery adds to the grandiose estimate of Tiberius Caesar in his own day. A bronze tablet discovered in Spain and first published in 1996 contains an inscription from the Senate decree of the Roman consul Piso, P-I-S-O, Piso, who was governor of Syria from 17 A.D. until he committed suicide in 19 A.D. Now, you might ask yourself why Romans so often committed suicide. Even Roman emperors committed suicide. Roman noblemen committed suicide. Wealthy Romans committed suicide. Why did they commit suicide? Well, according to Roman law... If you were executed, all of your estate was passed on to the state. But if you committed suicide, that was a noble way of preserving the inheritance of your assets for your legal heirs. So suicide was a way out of a tough spot, but it was also a legal way of allowing your heirs to receive your fortune. In any event, Piso, governor of Syria, committed suicide in 19 AD. <clears throat> but the significance of this discovery on this bronze tablet is the way it describes the Augustan Tiberian Imperium, that is, the Imperium of Augustus Caesar and Tiberius Caesar. It describes the Roman state in the new age of the monarchical emperors. Now, I have noted that the new age and the new order dawned in Rome with the succession of Augustus, Transformation in Roman culture brought in by Augustus, continued by Tiberius, altered the conception and ideology of the state. It altered the way people thought about the state and its ideology. Augustus Caesar became the pater familias, the father of the family. The family became all the Romans. You see what's going on. In other words, 
Augustan, Tiberian age transformed the nation of Rome into a family. And the head of that family was the emperor. The emperor was the father of all Roman children, citizens. And the honor due to the head of a family, namely the emperor, the honor due to the head of the family was a religious duty. After all, he was a son of a god. And cultic honors were required from all Romans. From this point, from this point of Augustus and Tiberius, a new history of Rome begins. It's not just the end of the Republic. It's not just the end of the Senate. It's not just the end of legal constitutionalism. This is a whole revolution. This is a whole change in direction. A Rome in which all Romans are now regarded as adopted into Caesar's family. And piety, pietas in Latin, pietas is a family virtue. And that family virtue is now transferred to the imperial state. It's transferred to the emperor. Piety is what is due to the emperor as the father of the nation, the father of the family. With the Pax Romana, with Augustan and Tiberian Caesarism, Rome entered a new age of patriotism. Patriotism is the virtue of the imperial cult. Patriotism is the virtue of the imperial state. It is patriotic to bow down before the emperor. It is, it is patriotic to worship the statue of the, the uh, <coughs> emperor God. In this new era, in this new era of the Pax Romana, the nuclear family becomes an extension of the state. Do you see how it runs? Do you see how it progresses? With absolute power comes the absolute dominance of the whole culture. And that means the absolute erosion of all the other traditional institutions, including the family itself, the nuclear family itself. So that in the Roman age after Augustus and Tiberius, the family became the instrument of the state and the state controlled the family through the father of the nation. The state sucks away at the authority of the family. The state is following the same path of imperial tyrannical Rome. Back to Luke for the final time. Luke is an amazing historian. Luke, this objective time and space historian, <clears throat> is the subtlety of his bookends to the Augustan, Tiberian, Imperium, an antithesis of the era, and the order revealed from heaven in this one name, my beloved son, in chapter 3, verse 22. If the new order of the gospel age is a kingdom not of this world, and the family of that new evangelical order is the adoption of sons and daughters of God through the Lord Jesus Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the head of that new order is the everlasting son of the father. Then is it possible that Luke has introduced Augustus and Tiberius not only for historical reasons, that is, he has an apologetic aim, he's defending the historicity of his gospel, but he has also introduced Augustus and Tiberius for redemptive historical reasons. Namely, he has a soteriological aim. That imperium is not going to save you. That emperor is not a god on earth who is going to redeem you. He can call himself a savior. He can be called a savior all you want, but he cannot save anything. 
He's dead. His empire eventually collapsed. It's dust and ash. There is no Roman emperor sitting on a throne on the Tiber. It is dust and ashes. It has passed away. It is nada, zero, nihil, nothing. There is nothing to it. No lasting eternity to it, except the testimony of its own history. And if you don't learn, and if you don't learn from the testimony of that history, as Georgia Santiana said famously, you are condemned to relive it. Surely, surely you can learn from this history. And be prepared, hopefully, not to relive it. Luke, as a theologian of the history of redemption, is telling you that that was fulfilled in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. The age of salvation dawns at the Jordan River in Luke 3, in a synagogue of Nazareth in Luke 4, on a cross at Golgotha in Luke 23, and in an empty tomb in Luke 24. Not in Rome. Not in Rome. The 15th year of Tiberius is identified with a life of one whose genealogy, in fact, whose history, reaches back to the beginning of history, back to the protological man, the first man, back to Adam, as Luke tells you, in Luke 3.38, he tells you that Jesus is the son of Adam. Where the sons of Rome reflect the depravity and perversity of the fallen Adam, this man, this eschatological man, this last man, Jesus Christ, is the true son of God in fullness, perfection, glory, and sinlessness. He is the head of of the family of the children of God. They are his lambs. He is their good shepherd. He has transformed them, changing them from citizens of this world to citizens of the world to come. The 15th year of Tiberius is the beginning of the end of the Roman Imperium. No, Rome would never turn the clock back to the days of the Republic and the Constitutional Roman Senate. They would never go back. They would go on to Attila the Hun and the destruction of the Roman Empire in the 5th century. But it is the end of the beginning of the eschatological imperium in the 15th year of Tiberius, that heavenly kingdom brought to us by the eschatological king of kings. That imperium has no end. If Luke's gospel mentions Tiberius Caesar but tells the story of Jesus of Nazareth, you know who is more important. More important to every Christian believer, more important to the church, more important to your history. His name is Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lord, very God of very God, Everything else has and will die and pass away, but he, he shall reign forever and ever, world without end. Any questions? Randy, you were saying something and I kept over, I kept, I, I steamrolled you. How come the Pope said that? 
Uh, <laughs> we'll leave that for another discussion. There is a modicum of truth in that, but again, we'll leave that for another. That would take another larger discussion. <clears throat> the spirit of Antichrist is definitely abroad in the Roman Catholic Church. There's no question about that. Any, any church that would condemn justification by faith alone, which is Paul's doctrine, is <clears throat> bearing the spirit of the Antichrist. All right, well, next time we have one more meeting. We usually have 13 in a semester. Uh, next time we will do Luke 4. So you'll be able to say you've done Luke 1, 2, 1 verse in 3, and sum of 4. <laughs> nice pun, Robert. All right. Shall we close in prayer? Father, how we thank you that we are delivered by the grace of Christ from the kingdom of foolishness, the imperial, magisterial, and arrogant whims of human beings stuck upon their own power, stuck upon their own pride, and stuck upon their own charisma. For those besetting sins do not belong only to the age of the Roman emperors. They belong to sinful men and women in every age. And Lord, how we thank you that in time past there have been restraints on that arrogance. And as we despair of the continuance of those restraints in our own day, we realize that this story has been lived before. Even 2,000 years ago, lived before. Imperial political ambitions, privilege, privilege which knows no restraint, whims of arrogance, and a nation which begins to crumble. Lord, we are delighted that we know Jesus Christ, we are delighted to know that in the first century there were Christians who lived in such a hostile environment, who lived in a world of that kind. And we realize that as we increasingly are conscious of living in a world of that kind in our day, we need the same hope and conviction and courage that those first disciples and first Christians had. In the face of a hostile pagan world, to say that Jesus lives, and because he lives, so shall I. We bless you for this kingdom, this glorious king, your son, this loving savior, our redeemer, this wonderful shepherd. We rejoice to be his lambs, his head of the family of God, our dear elder brother, and you, our Abba Father, all by the power of your gracious and Holy Spirit. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.